I heard a, a pastor tell a story when I was at a conference in Baton Rouge recently, and it was about a him and his ooh, it was about him and his daughter and son, and they were at a swimming pool, and his his son was jumping out towards him from the side of the pool, and he would catch him. And his, and his son would tell him to go further and further out, and he would go further and further out, and his son would jump. And they were just having a blast, and he kept, he kept telling his daughter to come do the same thing. She said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not interested. Um, and she was afraid. And it really bothered him, but he kept playing, and his son kept jumping. Um, and eventually she saw how much fun he was having and, and made, his way over, or made her way over there and said, you know, I want to try that. And so he said, okay. And she said, well, come closer. <laughs> and he came closer, and she said, closer. He came closer. She said, come a little bit closer. He came closer. And he said he was like, right, <laughs> almost to the edge. And, and she finally jumped. And over time, she began to, to build up confidence and jump out more and more. But what he, what he learned by that, what the Holy Spirit was telling about that is, there was a reason why she didn't want to do it in the beginning. It was, it was because she didn't trust him, whether she didn't trust his abilities to catch her or his motives or whatever it was. She didn't have enough trust for him. That was the reason why she wouldn't jump. But the sad thing is, and the thing that broke his heart is, she missed out on half the day of fun because she was afraid. And I, and I love that imagery, especially for the Christian, because we, I think we miss out on a lot of life because we're afraid that God's not really good or that he doesn't have good intentions towards us or that he doesn't truly love us. Now, if you've been here more than five minutes, you know that that's not true. You know that God does love us. From the very beginning, he made a plan for us. This wasn't a, a, a second thought that, he, that, that Christ came. This was from the beginning. Um, there was always supposed to be relationship, and God was always going to make a way for us. Um, and so I just love that imagery with the, with the father and kids. And it's, it's easy for me to see that because I have kids of the trust there. And so I want to talk a little bit about trust today. Um, we're going to start in John. <coughs> And it's, it's going to be kind of scripture heavy because I want to kind of go through this story, but I, I read fast, so listen fast. <laughs> this is uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. I might call him Nick a few times because I got tired of writing Nicodemus. Uh, but basically, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he sought out Jesus to meet him at night secretly because he was curious about what he was talking about and wanted to know more about it. Um, Nicodemus was educated, uh, Pharisee. He, he knew, he knew uh, the Torah. He was very familiar with theologically of kind of how things were, what he thought were supposed to be, but he wanted to know a little bit more about Jesus, so he, he got Jesus to meet him at night somewhere so his Pharisee buddies wouldn't be mad at him. And we'll start in verse 3. Uh, Jesus replied to him, uh, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter, <laughs> surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. This seems logical, right? That seems like a thing someone could say if someone says, hey, you need to be born again. Like, how is that even possible? So Nicodemus is looking at things intellectually. He's looking at things naturally and physically, right? He's saying, this doesn't make any sense. I I'm, not, I'm not picking up what you're putting down. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not grasping this. Um, <laughs> I'm not smelling what you're stepping in. He's, he's trying to understand. He's, kind of, he's trying to quantify Jesus and his ministry, right? He's, he's an intelligent person. He's trying to break it down. Verse 5, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So he's, give, he's, he's trying to lead him somewhere. He's trying to lead him out of the physical realm and into the spiritual realm. Now, this is very difficult to do with intellectual people. Have you ever talked to someone who is very intelligent, who, who is very analytical, likes to break things down? It's very difficult to explain spiritual things to someone like that because they cannot quantify it and they cannot break it down and figure it out. I'm not saying it's impossible. 
look at C.S. Lewis or people like that, that when they get it, man, they really get it. And they'll begin to understand it clear. But that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to take him, trying to take him somewhere. And he's saying, look, spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Listen to this. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So what is he doing here too? He's saying, look, the, the spiritual realm is not something that you can necessarily see. This goes back to us talking about the kingdom. This isn't a location. This isn't just a theology. This isn't just a thing. This is, this is bigger than that, is what he's saying. And the spirit is different than in the natural. When I say born again, I'm not talking about going back into your mother's womb and being literally born again. I'm, thinking, I'm talking about spiritual things. So in verse 9 he says, how can this be? He's still not getting it. You're Israel's leader, Jesus said. And you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So there's belief. We're going to see belief a lot in here. So he's saying everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, I see the scripture taken out of here and used a lot. Have you ever heard John 3.16? Pretty sure you have. Here's what's interesting in the context of what he's talking about here. For God so loved the world. Listen, God's not angry at the world in general. God created the world. He loved the world. He loves people. This is a radical statement to some people who think God's mad at everybody. God's not angry at everybody. God loves the world. God created people. God created a redemption plan for people. God has a good heart towards people, so much so that he gave his son right here so that he could die for them. For God did not send his son, now listen to this, and this is the scripture a lot of people lead off or leave off. For God did not send his son into the world so that he may condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So he didn't send him to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes, whoever believes, there's belief again, in him is not condemned. And now listen to, who, listen to who he's talking to, okay, in the context of this. He's talking to Nicodemus, who is trying to intellectually break down being born again and being transferred into this kingdom of heaven, right? Remember who he's talking to here. All he does is talk about belief like five times there. Believe, 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 believe. So he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So what he's doing is he, he is meeting Nicodemus where he is. He's trying to express to him something. He's trying to draw him out of the natural and intellectual quantifiable kingdom of God and, and explain to him, you have to believe for any of this to work. You have to understand that it's not going to be something that you're always going to be able to quantify and always going to be able to figure out. There is going to be mysteries that you can't quite grasp, kind of like the wind that you can't see. Do you see what he's doing here? Now, he reaches Nicodemus in one way. Now, we're going we're to switch gears, and we're going to go to John. John 4, 7. And I could tell you this probably from heart, because I've preached, <laughs> I've preached this, the, the Samaritan woman at the well probably ten different times, because there's so much there. But here we go again. <laughs> uh, so John 4, 7 says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, so Jesus was alone with her. This is another interesting point here. Uh, Nicodemus, Jesus was alone with him. He wasn't trying to make a spectacle of it. He wasn't teaching to a multitude. He was sitting down and hanging out with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, right? He does the same thing with this woman. He sits down. Uh, the, the disciples go on into town to get food. And Jesus is alone speaking to this woman. So they're having a, a very 
uh, we could say intimate talk. Same with Nicodemus. So he says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she was, she was ashamed, right? She, she knows her history. She doesn't know yet that he knows her history. We'll get to that in a minute. But she knows her history, so she's ashamed. Not only is she ashamed, but also this is a Jew and we don't, we don't hang out with each other. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. I love that. She's doing the same thing Nicodemus did. What are you talking about? You don't even have anything to draw with. How are you going to give me living water? Where can you get this living water? She said, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? So she's, she's the first, first thirsty woman here, is really looking for a natural fix for whatever her problem is. She doesn't understand fully what he's talking about. So look, he does the same thing with her. Jesus, Jesus answered, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, talking about the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them, pay attention to the wording here, in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now this is a, I call a meaty passage because this helps and once you, once you discover that truth that we talk about all the time, that Christ comes to live in our heart and he renews our mind. That's why it never says Christ came to live in our mind and he renews our heart. It's the other way around. When you, when you get that revelation, you see scriptures like this. It's so much clearer, isn't it? Now you see, look, this living water will come to be inside you and it will spring up like a well. It will begin to change you, right? Not just your behavior by trying to train your mind like Nicodemus is thinking, well, how do I do this in my mind? She's thinking the same thing. I don't get it. How are you going to get water? He's saying, listen, this water that I have is going to be inside you, and it's going to well up in you, and it's going to change you, and you'll never be thirsty again. So he's trying to bring her into the spirit too. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I, do not, so I, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking. She's not quite there yet. So he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, <laughs> and, the man you now, and you, the man you now live with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. <laughs> I always love that. It never gets old. I see that you're a prophet. So, so here she's getting a little closer to the spiritual things. Okay, so her mind is beginning to change, right? She's like, okay, this isn't just a Jew. This isn't just, just a regular person. This is a prophet. So she doesn't understand it's Christ yet. She doesn't even know who he is. Evidence in a minute. She doesn't even know this is Jesus for sure. She just knows it's a Jew. She shouldn't be talking to him. And now she recognizes, okay, you're a prophet. So here's where she switches gears. Okay, you're a prophet. Let me talk to you like a prophet. So she says, our, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews on, on the place where you worship must be in Jerusalem. And so she's, okay, she's shifting gears. Let me try to talk to you like you, I think that you should be, we should have this conversation. So he says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming, um, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Uh, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now, I've heard some people teach and preach from this scripture. There are several other scriptures talk about spirit and truth. But I, want to, I don't want to chase this rabbit too long. But he, these are the same thing. These are in the, along the same 
thought process. He's not comparing these as though they're two different things, spirit and truth. I hear a lot of people talk about, well, yeah, we need to be in the spirit, but also truth as though they contradict each other. And they don't. They go in the same direction. I'll leave that alone. <laughs> I could ramble about that all day. The woman said, I know, the, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So here, if we would try to formulate this from, from just these two stories, as many of us do, we try to formulate a, a system. We would say, okay, we need to find a person, I guess. We need to prophesy to them, right? We need to prophesy to them, and then we need to lead them kind of to salvation if we want to try to formulate something from this. But the problem with that is it breaks down because these, sto- these stories are, are very different in nature because these two people are very different, right? This is why Christ is so relational and why we talk about relationship being so paramount here is because guess what all of you guys are different I'm looking out here and I can see all of you and you're all different you look different you act different you have different things that you're going through that somebody else is not going through so how I'm getting ahead of myself but how 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 frustrating it is because we try to compartmentalize things and we try to structure things in a way that we can place them on people but sometimes those things don't fit let me stop before I get ahead of myself. Um, so let's look at the difference between the two stories here. Nicodemus was a Jew. The woman was a Samaritan. These are two different, two different types of people. Nick was educated. Like I said, I don't like... Nicodemus is just long, and I'm saying it a lot. And I got tired of spelling it. Nick was educated. The woman was not educated. Nick was, look up, Nick was looked up to. She was looked down upon, right? Nick was morally upright and proud of it. She was immoral and ashamed of it. Nick sought him out, sought Jesus out. She had no idea who he was. See the complete difference of the, of the two stories here? Jesus used a gift of the Spirit, the word of knowledge for her, talking about she had five husbands. So he used a, a gift of the Spirit here for her, but he didn't use a gift of the Spirit with Nick. He was just talking to him intellectually about spiritual things different from physical things. But here's the key. Nick shows us that no matter how religiously astute you may be, you still need Jesus for salvation. The woman shows us that no matter how many mistakes you've made or how many times you've been married, you're never beyond the reach of Jesus. Do you see the, the big differences there, but Christ the same? Do you see, do you see the, how important it is that, that Jesus stopped in the midst of his very short ministry and spent time with people and got to know people and sat down at a well with people and met this guy in a dark alley somewhere so he could secretly tell him about the kingdom. So here's the thing. There's no set pattern. There's no set pattern to, to, to structure this thing. It's very frustrating for, uh, for people who are gifted in, in, uh, in, what is it called? Administration. Thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for. People who are in administration, that can be very frustrating because we want to put bullet points down <laughs> and train people. Now, I'm not saying there's not discipleship and, and not to say there isn't structure, but it can be very frustrating to constantly talk about how when I really feel like Christ is talking about why. I really feel like the gospel is why and not how. Because we always talk about our want to. Your want to has to change for any of this to work. This well has to be in you. Well, this, this living water has to be in you welling up or it doesn't work in reverse. Religion says try really hard to change this. The gospel says, this has changed because of Christ. Now change this. Renew my mind. <laughs> Don't do that when you do it. <laughs> Renew my mind. 
We want so badly to put Jesus' teaching in a box, market it, and sell it, right? It would be beneficial to us, and we feel like it would be beneficial to other people to do that because that's pretty, that it can sound good, and it can create a very good business because you can take the teachings of Jesus and make them very surfacey moral teachings, and um, I'll try to word this the best I can, and manipulate people, really, from fear and insecurity into believing what you believe instead of just giving them the gospel for free. Here's something Jesus never did was bless people, save people, and heal people, and then hold his hand out for something in return. He never did that. He never asked for payment, and which was common at that time with other people who did those things, that practiced some of those things, would require payment for them doing those things. Jesus never did that. He always gave everything away for free. That's what we should be doing. That's the gospel, is giving people things for free. Um, But Jesus spent his entire ministry demonstrating, explaining that you cannot duplicate him or quantify him. You have to simply believe him, trust, and have a relationship. And it's absolutely free. Now we're going to take a step a little bit further than just explaining and coming to a general knowledge, and we're going to get a little bit into healing here in Mark. And we'll, we'll end with this. Um, I know we kind of went over a little bit in worship, but I want to at least get through this. I say we went over in worship. We enjoyed worship longer than we went over. I don't, I'm not going to apologize for it. I don't apologize for that. <laughs> take it up with the Holy Spirit. Mark, Mark 5, 21. Um, I'll lead up to this because I didn't want to print four pages out. Basically, Jairus' daughter was sick, and he asked Jesus to come and heal her. And this is, they're kind of on the way to, Jesus has agreed to go, to go heal her because she's sick. And they're on their way. In verse 21, it says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the lake. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, well, I did put it in here. Jairus came, <clears throat> and then when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she would be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So basically a lot of people took her money and didn't, she didn't get any better. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. because She thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and, <laughs> and asked, who touched me? <laughs> as Pharisees, as usual, they're like, you see all the people crowded around you, and yet you ask, who touched me? Like, really? Everybody. <laughs> Everyone's touching you. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, What a powerful word. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Listen, Jesus never says, my power has healed you. What did it say a few verses before that? He felt power being released from him. But he doesn't turn around and go, my power healed you. Which I guess he could if he wanted to. But what does he say? Your faith has healed you. Before he says that, he calls her daughter. I say that because think about this. He, he goes on to say, don't be afraid. 
and I'll get to that in a minute, because she came afraid. She said she was afraid. She was, she was af- afraid and trembling, probably because of the power that just hit her. Um, but he addresses all of her issues. He fixes the bleeding. He fixes whatever daddy issue she has because he calls her daughter. He gives her identity, right? He fixes her fear issue in a minute. He'll tell her not to be afraid. And then he builds her up in, in her faith and says, your faith has healed you. Now, here's the interesting thing. We, we think of faith as faith in just the healing. Now, I believe she had faith that he would heal her or she wouldn't have done that. But I think even more than that, she had faith in who he was. Now, why that's important is because if he's not good, then why would he heal her, right? He, she had to have faith that he was good enough Regardless of her past experiences with whatever was going on, she had to have faith in him as the Messiah and as a good person, right? Her faith was part of what healed her, was her understanding of who he was. It wasn't just the healing and what was going to happen. So while Jesus was still speaking, verse 35, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But here's what's interesting. They, they didn't understand it. Jairus did, but they didn't understand it because they, they just called him a teacher, but Jesus was much, was much more than a teacher. He said, why bother the teacher anymore? She's already dead, as though he's not powerful enough to raise her. Overhearing what he said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, <laughs> I love that. He, put, he was like, all right, get out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, uh, Talitha Kom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> She's been dead. She's probably hungry. Give her something to eat. Uh, well, <laughs> I love that little tidbit. Okay, because they were all excited and overwhelmed. They're like, okay, calm down. Give her something to eat. So if you look at these two instances, same thing. This woman ran him down and touched his cloak. In the other instance, Jesus goes to her. If we try to quantify this, we go, okay, well, what is it? You look at other healings in the Bible where Jesus spit in the mud and rubbed in people's eyes. So do we get some mud and spit in it and rub it in everybody's eyes? I mean, is that the formula that we need to, to do? Do we need to get it and seal it up and sell it to people? This is blessed mud. But that's what we, isn't that what we think? We think, okay, do what? Yeah, make a doctrine out. We want to take one small thing instead of looking at the bigger picture the, the meta-narrative of the scripture, the big story, the big picture of who Jesus was. And Jesus was a relational person that met with people who walked miles to meet with people, to heal them, to love them, who walked miles to meet a Samaritan where all the other Jews went around that area and walked miles to meet with someone, to spend time with them so that they could understand what they were going through and care for them and change their life and change everyone else's life around them. So Jesus never says, my power has saved you. He always says, my faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Not, and it's not just the faith, like I said earlier, that they could be healed, but faith that he was the Messiah, and faith that he genuinely loved and cared for people. So why is it important that we know who he is? It's important because we've got to get off this, this how thing and get to the why thing. Why do we do what we do? 
This is something I ask myself all the time as a pastor of a church. Why do we do what we do? And I think it's important that we know that. What's the purpose? Not how necessarily. Now, we'll, we'll figure out how to do it along the way, but why do we do it? And here's what I believe. There, there are hundreds and thousands of people, millions of people out there that don't trust God and don't trust you. And I say that because they're not as interested in what you have to teach them as they are in the person that you are and what you're demonstrating. Because you can preach the gospel without saying a word. You can demonstrate his love without telling someone that they need to do this or they don't need to do that. Now that comes along with relationship, but that's not a living well that will rise up in them. That's an outward constraint that will fall off as soon as the fear is lifted. Because you can only control some you can only control people as long as you are around them and and have some sort of boundary mechanism, whether it's guilt, shame, abuse, manipulation. You can only control someone that long. And here's the thing, it will destroy them and it will destroy you if you try to do it that way. This is why the gospels we sing the simple gospel. This is why the gospel is so simple. That's why it talks about spreading seeds. How easy is it to spread seeds? It's that easy. You just give the gospel to people for free. You don't expect anything in return. Now, this speaks to us relationally. How many times do you do something for someone, and in the back you, don't, you say, well, you don't owe me anything, but in the back of your head you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that up with him one day, you know, when I need something that he has, right? Or with your spouse. Hey, you know, I, I love you. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to meddle too much, so. But I'm gonna, I, I love you, so I'm going to do this. But in the back of my head, I'm going, this is going to pay off later for me. I mean, think about it. Are we freely giving love? Or are we always expecting something in return? Free is not a trade. If you expect something in return, that's a trade. And Christ never traded love, affection, identity, healing. He never traded that. He always gave it freely. Now, real quick, in Luke 4.18... This is Jesus, which is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is Jubilee. If you're not familiar with Jubilee, it's when all the prisoners were set free um, and were given a a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free ticket. Um, And the thing about that is that's the same Spirit the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that lives in you. Amen. So the spirit of the Lord that is on me is on you. Let's go back through this because he's anointed me, so you've been anointed. To proclaim the good news to the poor, that's, that's what we do. We proclaim the good news to the poor. So we've been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is Jubilee, which means they've been set free. At the very end of the service last week, uh, Brumbaugh, is Brumbaugh here? I don't think so. Brumbaugh came to me and he had a, a vision, and I love this. I'm going to kind of end with this. Brumbaugh gave me this vision that he got sometime during the service, and it was an old Superman episode in black and white. I've never seen it, but it was something to the effect, and if I butcher it, I'm sorry, so if y'all have seen this episode, forgive me. I'm just coming <laughs> off of what he was telling me. But it was something to the effect that Superman was going to rescue a bunch of other superheroes or something, and all of them were bound up in paper handcuffs. And they had been hypnotized, tricked into thinking that those handcuffs were real. 
And so they were all bound up in paper handcuffs, which they could break and walk away. But they didn't know it because they had been hypnotized that those handcuffs were real. And so Superman shows up and he's like, hey, <laughs> these are paper handcuffs. You can get out of here. And they're like, no, these are real. We can't do anything with it. And then Superman's like, well, I can use whatever, Superman laser eyeballs or whatever, x-ray vision, whatever he uses to, to blast them off. Just He's trying to help them out, right? And they're like, no, it's too dangerous. You could kill us, <laughs> you know, if you don't control it correctly. So they didn't trust him either. They didn't trust him that the handcuffs were fake, and they didn't trust him that he wouldn't hurt them, freeing them. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, what a great picture. And what Brumball was talking about was the whole generational curses thing and generational blessings. How can we have generational curses if we are now blessed through generational blessings through Christ? And it's just like those paper handcuffs. You can be lied to enough to be bound up with something that has zero power over you, but you can be tricked up here into thinking that you're bound, right? So much so that you don't even trust God to free you from them. What a powerful picture. Like, I love that. I even searched for the episode. I was going to try to find the video. I couldn't find it anywhere, but I'm Googling, like, <laughs> get on my Google kick again. Googling, like, Superman, you know, hypnotized, and I found all kinds of other ones, but I couldn't find that one. But what a great image, if I ever find it, we'll show it in here, but what a great image of how our mind can still be tricked even though our heart has changed. And this, is, this is something people wrestle with that, that don't, that either don't believe or, or come to, or have, or, or uh, bless you. Um, bless all of you, not just those that sneeze. You're all blessed. <laughs> You're blessed too. Everyone's blessed, not just sneezers. <laughs> anyway, uh, sneezers are just extra blessed. All right. So, uh, so those that think that, that, that there is some kind of sanctification that's going on in your heart, and that's not what I believe. I believe there is up here. I believe that we are already sanctified in Christ in our hearts. But the issue people come, well, why do I still have these thoughts? Because they're thoughts and they're not here. Why do I still think about sin or why am I still tempted up here? Because they're still a liar. They're still an accuser. There's, there are still things that have power but no authority that can lead you other ways. So it's up here, not here. What we do here, I talk about the why thing, is I, as much as I can, and hopefully us, we remind you of who you are here so that you can continually see it up here. I've got to quit doing that so you can see it up here. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll end with that. So the, I've got one question for you, and you can take this with you. It's, it's not rhetorical, but I don't want you to scream it out unless you just want to. But do you trust the Lord? And I want you to take that with you. And in everything that you do, I want you to think about that. Do you trust him? Because there, there are times, and, and Trace and I are going through some of this now, where our life is, is going to transition some in the near future, and things are going to look differently, and we're going to have to change some things and adjust. And all of you are going through different things that I don't know in detail about. But we trust the Lord regardless of what we do. We'll try to do the best that we can. We trust that the Lord has, has something for us and is leading us in everything that we do, and we pray that the Holy Spirit leads us in everything that we do. So as you leave this place, I want you to, to continually think about that this week and forever. <laughs> but do you trust him? I mean, it's an important question. Do you trust him? Stand up with me. I'm going to pray for you. It's a simple gospel. Um, I feel like I should give you something more, but that's, that's the best I got. Lord, uh, stir, in our, stir in us, Lord, your Holy Spirit, that as we leave this place, 
as we leave this place, we begin to doubt. Father, as we leave this place and we get distracted by life and we get um, caught up in our own circumstances, we get caught up in our own um, relational issues with family members or friends and we're offended and we're hurt, Lord, remember, not remember, you remember everything. Father, help us remember um, that you are trustworthy. Lord, that you are good and you have our best interest at heart, Father, that, that your timing is perfect. Lord, that even if we think this situation is dead, just like Jairus', Jairus daughter, Lord, that you can resurrect anything. Lord, that we think that, that, that things have to happen on our terms and in our plans. Lord, we, we make our plans as you say, man makes his plans, but you guide our steps. Father, guide our steps one at a time, one step at a time. Lord, as we leave this place, you, you guide our each step, each step, each step. And we think about the future and all these things that we're going to have, Lord, and you go, okay, that's cool, but let's take this day, one step. Trust me, one step, trust me. So, Father, I pray for everyone in this place, Lord, that you would seal in their hearts your trust, your, your, your ability for them to trust you. I'm sorry, their ability for them to trust you, Lord, and their confidence in you that you are trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.